to the Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour. If you're going to discover diamonds, you also have to make room for horse shit. The Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour. There's very often like a, a fucked up protagonist saved by love. Phantom et Cheval Radio Hour. Did I say horses and ghosts? I meant Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour with Brian Bieber. Let me be clear about one thing right up top. I love animals, and I would never do anything to hurt an animal. That said, here's how I would fight certain animals. The top thing a tarantula has going for it is its sneakiness. I can easily imagine myself talking with one of my good buddies about TV shows or whatever, not even knowing anything is wrong until my buddy's face gets all pale and his eyes start to bug out and I turn my head to find a tarantula on my shoulder. By then it's pretty much too late to do anything because the tarantula is already stabbing me in the neck with its pincers, and I'm halfway dead of spider poison before I even hit the ground. The best defense against a tarantula? Preparedness. It seems simple, but the first thing I do is not wear so many layers of clothes that I couldn't feel a big spider crawling up my neck. But let's be honest with ourselves. If the spider is already crawling up me, then the fight is pretty much already lost, no matter how many layers of clothes I'm not wearing, because that tarantula could jab me with those pincers at any moment on any part of my body. Then it's PPPNT. That's Poison Pincer Permanent Nap Time. So how do I avoid letting the tarantula get on me in the first place? Again, it seems simple, but how about this? Keep an eye out for tarantulas on the ground and on the walls, because they can crawl on the walls. I know, duh, right? But can tarantulas jump at me? I don't know for sure if tarantulas can jump, and if they can, how far. But for the sake of this argument, let's say a tarantula is jumping right at me. What do I do? Ideally, I'd have a tennis racket with me, so I could hit it with that tennis racket. At first glance, a tennis racket might seem like a silly choice for a self-defense weapon, but the combination of its wide surface area and lack of wind resistance because of the netting part of it makes it the perfect thing with which to hit a leaping tarantula. One big problem with this plan is that I don't play tennis. People talk a lot about kangaroos boxing, but that's not a real thing. What kangaroos do is more like kickboxing because they use their feet to hit you. But they also use their tails to support their weight while they do that, so their kicking is really nothing like how kickboxers kick. People don't even have tails, and if we did, it would obviously be a game changer. But we don't, so just forget any analogies between human martial arts and kangaroo fighting for now, because you'll just get yourself all mixed up. Obviously, the main thing I'd have to watch out for in a kangaroo fight is those feet, because the kangaroo's lower body is incredibly powerful. Also, I don't know if they have any kind of claws in their feet, but if they do, that's some added danger as well, because of potential scratching. Since kangaroos are known for their jumping skills, my primary fight plan might seem a little counterintuitive, but if I had to fight a kangaroo, I would try to sneak up on it, taking a page from the book of my old rival, the tarantula, and jump onto the kangaroo's back and choke it out. The kangaroo has a pretty long neck, so it would probably be relatively easy to get my arms around it. Now, I know what you're thinking, and yes, I understand that the kangaroo would probably be jumping around all over the place trying to get me to let go. I've already thought about that though, and I think that I have enough upper body strength and mental stamina to hold onto the kangaroo's neck long enough for it to pass out. It's not like it could grab me and pull me off or anything. I mean, have you seen how short a kangaroo's arms are? Would it be easier for me to try to lasso the kangaroo from a distance? Of course it would be. I could probably lasso anything from a distance if I had enough rope. I don't think that there's any way to fight a dinosaur effectively. There are just too many variables in that equation. Some scientists spend all of their lives trying to figure them out, but we still don't even know what color dinosaurs were. 
Did you know that some scientists now think dinosaurs may have had feathers? What am I supposed to do with that? In closing, I'd just like to reiterate that I love animals, and I would never, ever hurt an animal. The year was 2000, so that would put me at 38 years old. With the location was Iowa City, Iowa. We were going down to watch Brock Lesnar and the NCAA wrestling duels. This is my friend Steve. He's an artist and an art dealer. He's also really big and tall and kind of tough looking. And uh, the f- it was myself. I weighed about 285, which is about the same as the heavyweights. My buddy Billy, who had at least 50, 75 pounds on any heavyweight there. Jack, who is about my size, and uh, Pat Rounds, his, uh, not very sizable, but his brother was the governor. Uh, and then the, the last guy was our friend Scotty Ward, who is one of the best wrestlers in South Dakota history. He's a little guy, but... So that was our group of five guys. We're all about 37, 38, and definitely at the age where you can go into a bar and no one messes with you anymore. So... We are confident of that, and the other thing we noticed is that the the whole town was full of tiny guys, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was amazing. All and when we went to the wrestling tournament, there were no women in there. It was all tiny guys. You could see grandpa, dad. It was generations <laughs> of tiny people. Were they, were they just? Tiny relative to you and your friends are these? Uh, like, yeah, they were like lower weight wrestlers. I don't <laughs> think the upper weight guys ever went to those matches or something. Okay. But yeah, they all looked like wrestlers. There was a lot of cauliflower ear. We felt kind of funny being that we were big and had no cauliflower ear. <laughs> so anyway, that was uh, where we were. And we went after the wrestling match. We went down to a local bar in Iowa City and it happened to have exotic dancers. And so... <laughs> The five of us just sat back, all in a line on the same side of the table. We were sitting back from the stage about 20 feet, having a beer, just totally relaxed, arms crossed, leaning back in our chairs. And uh, one of those little guys I was telling you about came over to our table out of the blue, and the music was loud, and we just kind of all focused in on him, and uh, he leans over the table and says, Hey, You guys see that guy over there at the table with the hat on? And we slowly look back at his table, and sure enough, there's a guy sitting there with a baseball cap on, a little guy. Said, yeah, we see him. And he goes, he'll take on any one of you two out of three falls in the parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) So two out of three falls. Two out of three falls. He didn't say, my friend wants to fight you guys in the parking lot. No, there was no fight. I'm sure he'd help you up after the first fall. (laughs) And then someone says, ready, go, wrestle. But I also love to think about what that would look like. And you said, <laughs> okay, let's do two out of three falls. Yeah. What would that, is there going to be, you know, is, is his friend going to be the referee? I think maybe someone has to referee. You'd think money would change hands. Yeah. And you'd think the bar would empty out. <laughs> they must like, I mean, we were shocked to hear two out of three falls, but it must be a common thing in but Iowa where everyone yeah. wrestles. Man. That's also the, that's like a, a very strong statement to make too. He's very confident. Oh it's yeah. Like, it's not, it's not, hey, my buddy wants to 
you, like take you on or anything vague, but it was very. Uh, he had thought out the parameters. He did think it out. <laughs> he was like, "There's some big guys at the table, our yeah. table. Yeah, maybe you know, I do a bad move and the fat guy rolls over on me <laughs> and I'm screwed. Let's try two out of three matches. Yeah, you can get up. You can try again. <laughs> they did. They figured it out and sent the spokesman yeah. over to us. Yeah. And uh, we laughed our heads off at him, and the poor guy stood there, not sure what to do. And just as the laughter stopped, I said, you go back over there and tell any of those guys, uh, you go tell your buddies that I'll take any one of them on and story problems. <laughs> and uh, two out of three story problems. <laughs> and so we laughed at him again and uh, sent him back with his tail between his legs. And uh, the next, the rest of the night, we were pretty, uh, we felt pretty confident about ourselves. No one messed with us. The little guys from his table did kind of hover around us anytime we made a move, but uh, that was the end of the violence <laughs> that day. That's how it ended. I love the weird confidence that that guy had in that, like, I don't think I could just fight these guys. I don't want to challenge them to a fight. Yeah. Because I'm not very good at hitting he's people. Good, but he's a good wrestler, <laughs> yeah, a talented he's wrestler. He's wrestling. He's <laughs> probably been watching all the matches, got yeah. some great moves figured out from watching all the best in the country. Yeah. And then, if you could have seen the bar full of little people, our table was gigantic <laughs> next to these people. He chose our table. <laughs> he was oh, tough. And that's probably his confidence it's probably what made us back down a little and not want to do two out of three falls. Sure. But instead, the story problems are more our speed. <laughs> if we can just find a chalkboard, yeah. I think we can take you. <laughs> it's too bad that's not how, how the world functions just in general. Where yeah. You can choose your... Um, you can choose your strength. Like I'm... I'm yeah, if, like, like if, a, if a guy were to come up and say... I'd like to have. A, I'm pretty good at bass guitar. Yeah. I think I'm better than you. <laughs> let's and do. Um, let's let's do a bass solo. Two let's out of three. Yeah, two out of three bass solos. We'll see. We'll see who comes out top after 32 bars. Yeah, 32 bars good idea. We could maybe take it a one step farther, Brian. If the guys have been drinking, <laughs> take them on like two out of three raking those people's yards over there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you're actually already <laughs> set it up with those people that you would rake their yard. Yeah. <laughs> This guy takes it as a challenge. You're making money off him now. So it's a wrestling town. We should have been ready for that, I guess. Yeah, should have packed your singlet. A singlet? Oh, I always keep mine on. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's never gone out of style. But headgear is one thing. With all the cauliflower oh, ear, yeah, gotta... I think you should pack your headgear <laughs> in Iowa. <laughs> Even if it's just for the fair. <laughs>
In grade school, there was a kid named Jim who could pop his shoulder in and out of its socket at will. I was often invited to, come on, feel it, man, it's so weird, when he performed his trick. The sight and sound of it made me nauseous, so I politely declined all those invitations. I think of Jim for the first time in years after my Aiki Jiu-Jitsu instructor shows me the most efficient way to wrench someone's arm from his or her shoulder socket. He actually uses the word efficient. A year after becoming a student of this art, it gets more and more martial with every class I attend. Usually I'm not bothered by the casual acts of simulated violence we perform twice a week, but the thought of the strange and horrible bulge that Jim would so often summon from beneath his t-shirt has suddenly made me queasy and uncertain. At a family get-together when I was six, my cousin, who was then five, proudly brandished a new cap gun. It was a silver-colored plastic cowboy six-shooter, and though even as a child I was never a gun fetishist, I was impressed. When my cousin was occupied with other toys, I picked up the pistol. I couldn't get the caps to fit correctly, so I asked him for help. He was very hot-tempered then, and flew into a rage when he saw me holding his new favorite toy. Before I knew what was happening, he had me pinned to the ground and had wrenched the gun from my hands. Holding it by its barrel, he pitched his arm back to strike me with a butt end. I panicked and swung my fist wildly, somehow connecting with his nose and splaying him backward on the floor. I began to cry when I saw the blood dribbling from his nostrils, afraid he would bleed to death. He began to cry after I did, shocked to be, for the first time, on the receiving end of a punch to the face. Between grades 1 and 7, I was bullied by a skinny boy. He was popular, or at least I took him to be, and though he was unpleasant to most, he took special care to be brutal with me. His name was Ricky and he was ugly, with black eyes and dirty blonde hair. When he said something cruel, he spit. Kote Mawashi is performed in four steps. It involves twisting your opponent's wrist and hand inward toward his or her body while slipping under the arm and behind him or her. With each step you take, your opponent's arm is manipulated in such a way that a specific part of it is damaged. Step one breaks the wrist. Step two severs the connective tissue in the elbow. Step three breaks the elbow. Step four simultaneously dislocates the shoulder and severs its connective tissue. Our instructor is a short man. He's a little portly with small round glasses and a salt and pepper goatee. He tells the class what to expect orally. He says that the arm goes crack, snap, pop, pop, snap. His cadence is percussive. He makes learning fun. The room in which I punched my cousin seems dreamlike when I try to remember it. The ceiling was impossibly high, the walls covered in mounted antlers and deer heads. A stuffed black bear stood in the corner, teeth bared and arms raised. There was a wooden spiral staircase that led up to a landing that overlooked the room, and this is where my mother and father and aunt and uncle sat. This room was a coliseum and my cousin and I were gladiators. This room was a cave and we were primitives. Logically, I know that this room doesn't exist the way I remember it. I'm sure, though, that I punched my cousin and that his nose bled and bled. Looking puzzled by the x-rays of my shoulder, the doctor asks me to explain again what happened. I can't give too many details, as I wasn't aware of the injury as it was happening, but I speculate as to which technique would have produced the tissue damage he is describing. I tell him about Kote Mawashi, and he harumps, unimpressed. I would have guessed you'd been hit by a car, he says. I've never thought myself terribly macho, but secretly this pleases me very much. It turns out that I'm the kind of guy who gets hit by a car, but then waits a week to go in for x-rays. When I was 12, Ricky challenged me to a fight after school, and I accepted. It was right before study hall, and he stopped by my desk to spit insults at me before taking his seat. What you doing, pussy? What you doing? 
After school, faggot, let's go. I was angry and suddenly aware of how small he was, so I said, Okay, let's go. After school. He was silent for a moment, and then a sickly, terrible grin spread across his face. You're dead, he told me. My cousin is the only person I've ever really punched. After, my father explained to me about self-defense. A little later, my cousin's parents made him apologize. It made no sense. He had a bloody Kleenex stuffed in his nose and my hand didn't even hurt. I don't know who owned the house or why our two families were there together. I remember there being many toys that belonged to neither my cousin nor me, but I don't remember there being any other children present. I later learned from my mother that there was no landing, no wooden staircase. The adults were two rooms away and saw nothing. Ricky invited me to his ninth birthday party. I didn't understand the invitation, and assumed that I must have been included by mistake or as a joke. Even so, because of who he was and because of who I was, it never occurred to me not to go. His house was a few miles out of town in a semi-residential neighborhood in which dirty fields and unpaved roads surrounded each home. During the drive to Ricky's house, I expressed my concerns about the party to my father. He wasn't dismissive, but urged me to keep an open mind. Maybe Ricky wanted to be friends now. Maybe this was his way of saying sorry. How long do I have to stay? I asked him. I expected the party to be attended by the most popular of our classmates, because those were the circles in which Ricky ran on the playground. Instead, the only children at the party were Ricky, his cousin, his two younger siblings, and me. I asked where everyone was, and he artfully avoided the question. I gave him his present, which my father and I had purchased that morning at the drugstore. It was a cheap red plastic water-powered rocket thing. I had no idea what kind of stuff Ricky liked, and didn't really want to get him anything too nice since he had been terrorizing me for as long as I had known him. He was happy with the rocket though, and suggested we try it out. The backyard was full of adults, who I guessed were aunts and uncles. There was a keg of beer and food laid out on picnic tables. We moved through the crowded yard to the field behind the house. As we passed, a drunk, middle-aged uncle said, Great party, Rick, and then laughed in a way that made me want to get away from him. We followed the instructions and sent the rocket high into the air, powered by a stream of pressurized water. We were going to do it again, but it landed on a rock and broke into a bunch of useless pieces. I spend the rest of my Aiki Jiu-Jitsu class trying to imagine the feel of a person's bones moving in the wrong direction beneath my hands. I imagine pulling a person apart at the joints. I imagine hearing the crunch of collapsing cartilage, feeling a skeleton yield under its skin, and I become lightheaded. After only 1,000 repetitions, any movement, no matter how complicated or hurtful, becomes entirely reflexive, as involuntary as a sneeze. By the end of class, I am convinced that soon I will be completely numbed, able and willing to rip and twist and snap someone apart. I suddenly wish that I was 10 years old again and that Jim would ask me to touch his trick shoulder. Yes, Jim, yes. It is so weird. Let me touch it again. When I was young, I often dreamed about being chased. The dreams were regular occurrences until I was about 14. Then I began having fight dreams. I would try to punch and kick, but my limbs were heavy and useless. A few years ago, the dreams changed again. Now I am quick, but my opponent is made of rubber, and no matter how I try, I cannot break him apart. I was petrified. I spent most of the study hall sweating and tapping my fingers on my desk. I watched Ricky at his desk three rows ahead of me. At first, I mistook his fidgeting as a sign that he was anxious to kick some ass. But it became obvious as his knee jackhammered the floor, and he kept looking everywhere in the room except at me, that he was nervous. When study hall ended, on the way to the lunchroom, I stopped Ricky in the hall. I spoke to him like a lover. This is stupid. It's gone on way too long. I'm so tired. Let's just call it quits. 
He didn't say anything, but he nodded and offered to shake my hand. Unfortunately, we never fought after school, and nothing really changed between us. One thing I didn't mention. When I punched my cousin in the nose, it felt good. Ricky and his cousin showed me around the neighborhood. There was a girl with big tits who lived next door, and Ricky's older brother got laid by her once. There was a family of Filipinos down the road, and Ricky's family didn't like them. I wasn't quite sure what a Filipino was, but I kept my mouth shut. There was talk of throwing rocks at the Filipino family's dog, but luckily, Ricky's cousin was hungry, and suggested we go back to the house to eat. I seconded the motion. Ricky reluctantly agreed, casting dirty looks down the road toward the chain-link fence that housed the terrier. After class, the most fashionable of my Eki Jiu-Jitsu classmates dons a black fedora with a small red feather in the brim. As we file out of the building, our instructor says to him, Nice lid. This groovy kind of jazz talk is typical. Our teacher calls clothes threads and digs film noir. When he isn't teaching efficient methods of inflicting bodily harm, he teaches theater classes at a private college. He speaks in euphemisms, but they are severe. He doesn't talk about killing, he talks about plucking life. When he thinks that we are practicing a particularly dangerous technique without thought of its real-life ramifications, he stops the class and says, Perform each movement with the understanding that you will be held accountable for it. We don't do things just because we can. We do them because we are absolutely sure that we must. It turned out that one thing Ricky and I had in common was a love of cocktail wieners. We both piled our paper plates high with them and headed back into the house so that he could show me his room. On the way, Ricky's foot caught on the living room carpet, and he fell face first to the floor, his tiny hot dogs and their sauce splattering across his t-shirt in the cream-colored shag. His mother, whose presence I hadn't noticed, stood at the other end of the living room. Maneuvering her words around a cigarette, she said, What the hell is wrong with you? Get off your ass and clean that shit up. Then she turned to me and said, Who are you? Not long after, I feigned illness so that I could go home. I had to ask him several times, but eventually Ricky gave me the phone and I called my father to pick me up. It was a long wait since we were so far from my house, and for the first part Ricky sat with me on the porch. Eventually he got tired and angry and he went back inside. When my father pulled off the gravel road and onto the driveway, I ran to meet him. It is evident to the doctor that I have not been faithful to my physical therapy regimen. The initial damage done to my shoulder wasn't that severe, he says. Six weeks of rest and exercises with giant rubber bands should have fixed it. He removes his glasses and frowns, and for an instant, he reminds me of Jim. The doctor asks me to describe again what it is that I do that is so hard on my body. I begin to explain the art that I study. It's beauty, it's history, it's science. But I become distracted by the doctor's grimace. As he clenches his jaw, I note the gentle, vulnerable depression of his temple. I follow his crow's feet into the pit of his eye socket, and then out again to the peak of his nose slope. His brow is furrowed so that the skin is gathered directly between his eyes, where a quick strike would cause momentary blindness. I mentally trace a line down the bridge of his nose. A sharp upward blow would produce a break in extraordinary amounts of blood. I proceed down his chin and up his jawline, where the earlobes end and the jaws attach so delicately to the skull. All the flaws of human construction are diagrammed neatly in the look of disapproval he wears. He's not interested in how gracefully the tissue in my arm was torn. He only sees a mess. The next time you hurt your shoulder, it will be much worse, he tells me, and it isn't in great shape now. This is the extent of his lecture, but by the time he's finished, I've pummeled him a dozen times over in my mind, where I can afford to be merciless. 
Radio Hour theme is Bad Taste by The Absolute Monarchs. You also heard music in this episode by We All Have Hooks for Hands, Miro Bell, Cecil Otter, and the World Inferno Friendship Society. The Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour logo was designed by Christy Corver. Big thanks to Steve Bormas for sharing that story earlier and for using his awesomely deep voice to do so. The Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour is now sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is offering fans of Ghosts and Horses a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial. Just go to audibletrial.com slash ghostsandhorses, or just click the Audible button at ghostsandhorses.com. It's a great way to support the show and get something for free. Um, there's over 100,000 titles to choose from, and I recommend checking out Moshe Kasher's Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. And that's audibletrial.com slash ghostsandhorses. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave a nice review? And if you like the show that much, why not tell your friends? And if your friends are in the majority of the population who still don't know what a podcast is, uh, why don't you go ahead and explain it to them, and then refer them to the Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour. You can check out past episodes of the show at ghostsandhorses.com. And you'll also be able to find other neat stuff, like the gallery of photos of my head awkwardly photoshopped next to celebrities. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can email me directly at ghostsandhorses at gmail.com. This has been the Ghosts and Horses Radio Hour, and I've been Brian Bieber. You are very, very welcome.